Elisha. It's called Dream Bigger, Start Smaller. Uh, to catch you up, if you weren't with us last week, we looked at the story where Elisha, he burns his farming equipment. He burns his plows. And it was the idea of Elisha planting his, his flag on the ground and, and confirming his commitment to God and going, listen, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to give myself a chance to go back to my old way of living. I'm going to move forward and go to the new way of living as God has for me. That was last week. So last week was me challenging you, what plow do you need to burn? Well, this morning, what I'm going to challenge you to do is, is to pick up a shovel. You know, what the heck does that mean? Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. But in the meantime, let me just make an observation. The observation that I've made over all the years as I've pastored is that I, I bump into a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians who burn their plows, they get rid of plan B, they follow Jesus no matter what, uh, they make a choice to give their life to Jesus Christ, and, but something, something happens in their spiritual journey. At some point in time, they get stuck. They, they somehow or another end up in maintenance mode. They get into a rut. Have you ever felt that way? And you're like, what, what do I do? How do I get out of this? It's not like I'm doing something that I shouldn't. or I, I'm just stuck. Um, what I've noticed is, in my opinion, there's two reasons why we get stuck. Now, this may be financially stuck. This may be stuck in a marriage, not making progress. This might be educationally, in your career. But spiritually, especially, let me give you two reasons why I think it happens. Number one is we don't think big enough. We don't think big enough. If you notice on your study guide, there's a passage there. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, God wants to do immeasurably more in your life than you could ever imagine. We, we think too small. We don't think big enough. The great, very famous preacher from Chicago, D.L. Moody, used to say it this way. If God is your partner, then make big plans. Now, having said that, it's not enough just to think big. It's not enough just to dream big. At some point in time, you've got to get off the couch and you actually got to do something, which leads us to the second bullet point. Some of us don't think big enough. Others of us don't start small enough. We don't begin to implement what God has given us. Wonderful verse that I've never seen until this week. Let me show you. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. It's in your study guide. It says this, Do not despise the, the small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin or start. And it's this idea that God can give you a big dream. He can give you a big plan. He can give you great big goals in your future. But he always asks you to start small. He also always gives you small beginnings, small steps to implement right now, today, that will lead to the potential of a great future. Does that make sense? So if last week the story was about burning farming equipment, burning the plows, today we're going to look at a story in 2 Kings chapter 3, you can it, pull it up on your phone or look it up in your Bibles, um, where we're, it illustrates what you see on the screen about dreaming big, but, but, but God wants to do big things, big miracles in your life, but he's going to ask you to start small. We're going to look at that. So 2 Kings chapter 3 is where we're going to be. I have most of the verses for you up on the screen. So we're going to start in verse 1, and here's what we read. It's a story of four kings here. It says, Joram, son of Ahab, that's going to become important later, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So this is a time and period of history where God's people are divided. They have fought civil war, and you've got Israel has a king and Judah has a king. Speaking of Joram, we read, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as bad as his father and mother had done. 
He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made, but nevertheless, he still clung to the sins of Jeroboam, and he did not turn away from them. So he's not a good guy. Verse 4, now Mesha, another guy, king of Moab, he raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute. There was a contract that he had, and the contract was of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, so he has this contract with Ahab. When Ahab dies, the king of Israel, then his son takes over. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So that, that, that at that time, the king Joram said to Samaria, uh, uh, King Joram set out to Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. He's broken the contract. Will you go help me fight against Moab? I'll go with you. And so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of of Edom, and they go after the king of Moab. So this is a story of four kings. The conflict between four kings. Let's put it up on the screen. Here's what we have. We have the king of Moab. His name is Mesha. And as as I already kind of gave you the the, the idea in the story, he breaks his contract. He reneges on his commitment. He's got to bring this wool. He's supposed to give these sheep. And he doesn't do it. He backs out. He's like, I, that, was, that was my deal with your dad. I'm backing out. Well, well, the king of Israel, Joam, goes, oh, no, 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 no. The deal was with our country. The deal was with our government. You're not allowed to back out. Now, the hint is given to us in this passage of who Joam, Joram's parents are. <coughs> they are Ahab and Jezebel. If you know anything about them, they are awful people. Awful people. And many times we pick up the habits of our parents, not always, but in this case, this happens. And, and, and Joram is much like his mother and his father. And while reneging on a contract wasn't right, some of his response is also completely out of line. He calls the king of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. Now, what we see about Jehoshaphat is that he's not evil like Joram, the king of Israel, but he's by no means godly. He, you see on the screen, he's moderately godly. You know, he shows up to church on Christmas and, and, and on Easter, but that's about it, right? Moderately godly. He occasionally prays during his meals, but he's not obedient. And he decides, okay, my buddy needs help. I'm, I'm with you. I'll go with you. And then finally, they call their, their, their friend, the king of Edom. We do not have his name. They tell him the situation. And this is just a guy. He's a friend willing to help his buddies go to war with the king of Moab. That's the historical background, Okay. The story goes on, verse 9 and 10. Let's read. It says, So the king of Israel, Joram, set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march for seven days, so they're, they're traveling for seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Now, time out for a moment. This is not, uh, we have a power outage, we can't watch cable tonight. <laughs> oh, they don't have Wi-Fi at the hotel? This is not a luxury. Water in the middle of the desert is a, is a requirement. It's a necessity for soldiers and for animals. It's a necessity. Can you imagine the poor servant who was in charge to go tell the king? No, you tell him. No, you tell him, right? And, and the response, I think, is incredible, right? We don't have water, not for the soldiers, not for the animals. The king responds, What? You've got to be kidding me. Now what do we do? We're seven days away from our castle. What do we do? We're stuck. What, exclaimed the king of Israel? And then he adds, 
and I've underlined it because it's going to become important in a second. The Lord has called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab, right? God got us into this. But Jehoshaphat asked, well, is there a prophet of the Lord here that we can inquire, find out what's going on? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha is here. He's the prophet in the land. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Don't miss the drama. This is better than a telenovela. <laughs> I kid you not. You can't make this stuff up because what the, what the author is suggesting to us is don't... Listen, do you remember King Ahab and Jezebel? They persecuted Elisha's boss, Elijah. And now they are coming to him, asking him for help. And they know exactly what they did to his boss. Does that make sense? It, there's the, the tension is thick. It leads to the first principle I want to talk to you about this morning, and it's this. God gets annoyed when we treat him like a spare tire. So there's two phrases that are in this passage that, that we, have to, we have to talk about a little bit. The first one is when the king of Israel says, well, God called us to, to do this. Time out. Where does it say that in the passage? Because I didn't see that. Did you see that? It's not there. He just kind of throws that in there, hoping he can get away with it. God never instructed them to go to war because they didn't pay with the wool and the, and the sheep. None whatsoever. Then Jehoshaphat, the sort of godly king, he adds, well, we're kind of stuck. Maybe we should talk to a prophet, the prophet of God. Now, the implication in the story is basically this. You morons, you should have done that before you left the castle. You don't consult God after you get stuck. You consult God before you go on the big campaign. What are you guys thinking? Let me give you the real story here. This is the story of three kings. One is evil. One is lukewarm towards God. And the other one has no association with God, none whatsoever. Three guys who uh, do their own thing, live their life their own way. They don't need or want God's input or advice until there's an emergency. And the minute there's an emergency, then they expect God and the pastor and the entire congregation to drop what they're doing and come running to their help. That's what's going on right here. We get a flat. We have an emergency. And we go to God because he is our spare tire. Now, I know country western singers have beat this phrase to death, but he really wants to be the steering wheel in your life. He wants to be the one that guides and directs which way you're heading. The steering wheel. He, he doesn't want to be stuck in the trunk. He doesn't want you to come to him only when you have a flat, only when you have an emergency. Does that make sense? Let me say it just a little bit differently. Let me give you this life principle. Daily dependence on God is a key component to healthy faith. Daily dependence on God. So by that, what, what do I mean by daily dependence? Well, daily talking to him, praying, right? Not just for your meal, but a couple minutes praying. Daily reading his word. In the back counter, we have these little things called our daily bread. I, I kid you not, it takes you four minutes to read one verse, one little story, and a thought. It's daily communicating with God. Now, don't get me wrong. When you do have an emergency, your heavenly father isn't against you come running for help. Don't, 
don't, don't, don't, take that, don't take that as my message. Because he absolutely wants to help you when you have an emergency. But don't forget, he's a heavenly father. Those of us who have parents, those of us who are parents where the kids have moved out of the house. If you have not experienced this, let me give you a little hint about those of us who are parents and the kids have moved out of the house. We don't want the kids to call us just when there's an emergency, just when they need help, just when they need cash. <laughs> Slip that one in. My daughter's in the back. No, I'm just. Now, I don't mind when they call us for that. You know what I want? I want them to call me just because. Do you know why? Because I love having a relationship with them. And if that's how an earthly father feels, how much more does your heavenly father feel the exact same way? Daily dependence of, on God is a key component to healthy faith. In any case, back to the story, we've got this, these guys. They're, they're in trouble. They are seven days away from their castle. They are supposed to go to war with this army that they feel have, has, have gypped them of, of a contract. And now they, they have, they're missing the key ingredient to basically be strong, water. They desperately need water. They desperately need rain. And so their solution is, well, let's find the man of God. Maybe he can help us out. I read this story and I couldn't help but thinking about what happened to me five years ago in Burundi. Some of you heard what happened to me. I'm in Burundi. And this is a small country, it's actually a very dangerous country in, in Africa, and I'm there to teach pastors. And uh, these pastors, now you've got to understand, there's lots of places in Burundi that have what is referred to as syncretism religion. You know what that word means? Syncretism is when you mix two religions. So I'm talking to pastors who genuinely have given their life to Christ. Their congregations have genuinely embraced Jesus as their Savior. But these people, these pastors, have come from tribal religion. Tribal religion that had witch doctors and, and that had medicine men. They had individuals that had a tremendous amount of spiritual power in the village, right? And so they bring some of those thoughts into their Christian, Christianity. And they haven't uh, quite understood that that's not quite in this book, right? So I'm talking to this group of people. I'm teaching these pastors. And at the end of my first session, I had three sessions with them. I was there for four days. After my first session, I sit down the guy comes up to do announcements, and it starts raining. And it's loud because they have a tin roof. And as soon as it starts raining, there's chatter all around the, 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 the room, the, car, the, the church that we're at. And, and then the bishop of the area, of all the pastors, he comes marching down the center aisle. He shoes the guy off that's doing announcements, and he says this. We have needed rain, and we didn't get it. Now, he says this because 50% of their food comes from the gardens in the back of their house. If there's no rain, there's no food, right? We needed rain and we didn't get it. We prayed for rain and we didn't get it. We pleaded to God for rain and he did not give it to us. And then he says this, but then the man of God came and he points to me. The man of God came and he brought us rain. And everybody starts clapping, right? And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going well. <laughs> then the bishop asks me to come up and say a few words, right? I'm supposed to respond to the man of God has come and he has brought us rain. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm like, I'm not going to correct their theology. Uh, and and I, my mind is mush. I don't know what to say. 
the man of God has brought us rain. What do you want to say? All I thought to say was, you're welcome. And then I sat down. I don't know. And then I was like, what am I doing? Right? Now, this gets interesting. The next day, I teach my second lesson. I, again, the same thing happens. I'm done teaching. I sit down, and it starts raining. Now, this is a different time of the day. It's not like every day at 1 p.m. it starts raining. And, and, and as soon as it starts raining, all the pastors are looking at me like, you, <laughs> you the man, man of God, Dave. Yeah, right? Now, here's where it gets weird. Here's where it gets really weird. I kid you not. I am not making this up. I am not exaggerating. Sometimes I exaggerate in my stories. Not today, right? <laughs> Third session. I'm done with the session. At the end of my prayer, my concluding prayer, it starts raining again. And everybody starts smiling. And I, it's at that moment I had this thought, maybe I can make it rain. <laughs> maybe... Maybe that's my superpower, you know? <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the story. In Burundi, they believed they needed the man of God, David, to bring rain. In 2 Kings chapter 3, they believed they needed the man of God, Elisha, to bring rain. What I encounter is that there are many of us that believe that when we need a miracle from God, when we need rain from God, we also have this idea that we need to go find a man of God to help us out with our rain problem, with our miracle problem. And I'm here to tell you that's a mistake. Do you know why? Because this book says you're a man of God. This book says you're a woman of God. It's not to say that the pastor or the church staff don't want to help you. This book says you have direct access to the creator of the universe. And that is good news. As the story goes on, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. This is what we read. Jehoshaphat said, now remember, this is the sort of moderately godly king. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with Elisha. Again, in those days, God spoke through prophets. So it's a little bit different time of day. Now, Elisha answers. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint in advance. Listen for the sarcasm. Listen for the mockery. Listen for the ridicule. Listen for the disrespect. Right? Elisha is not happy. And he lets them have it, surprisingly, with what he says and how he says it. Right? I think he picks it up from his boss, because Elijah was a lot like this, too. Notice what he says, right? So, So we read, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with Elisha. So the three kings went to see him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, don't forget, this is the evil king. His mom and dad persecuted his boss. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you involve me? Why why are you you coming to me? Right? This is Elisha going, you know I have office hours. You never show up. You know I have email. You never send me an email. You know we have services on Thursday and on Sunday, three services. I've never seen you. We have Bible study on Tuesday morning. You've never been. Now you come running to me. Now you need me. Now now you, you come to me. Whatever. That's what's happening here. That's what he's essentially saying to the king. Imagine Elisha continuing to work on his laptop, not even giving the king eye contact. You talk about the height of disrespect. Now listen to the sarcasm, because now he lays it on thick. Why do you involve me, right? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He literally, he starts doing mama jokes. (laughs) 
Your mama's so fat. Your mama's so ugly. Your mama got, got prophets. You go see her prophets. I mean, sarcastic to the height, right? Speaking of, heart, of sarcasm, just the other day, I am, uh, it's the middle of the day, and um, Nurse Sandy is coming upstairs to, to tend on me. Nurse Sandy has been provided to me by Kaiser Permanente and, uh, to give me in-home care. She's wonderful. And uh, if you haven't picked up, Nurse Sandy is also wife Sandy. But, um, so she's coming upstairs. She's going to wrap my leg again, and it's lunchtime. She's brought me a little food, right? And it's not extravagant, but it's nice. It's a little ham sandwich. I like ham sandwiches. It's, it's white cheddar Cheetos. You ever had these? Delicious, and they're healthy for you. So, I mean, just you want to check them out. White cheddar Cheetos, right? Ham sandwich, white cheddar Cheetos, and she gives me a little salami. Now, it's not salami that you put on the sandwich. It's the small, hard, kind of Italian salami, right? So she's cut up six slices, and she has this nicely arranged on a plate. And she gives me the plate, and once I have it, because I'm in the be- in bed, and my, my leg is, is up, and you know it's, it's getting a little better slowly, but uh, it's still, still painful. And I, I, it, she, I take the plate, and as I have it, now she reaches onto my plate, and she grabs two pizzas of salami. She eats them. And I'm thinking that's, that's like 30% of my salami right there. I only have like six, right? So my response was this. Hey, hey! You want to know what she said? This is what she said. What are you going to do about it, gimpy? <laughs> Elisha has an attitude problem. Nurse Sandy had an attitude problem. <laughs> you know what I say to her recently when she says that kind of stuff to me? I said, let's not forget the, the roles that we have in this marriage. You are the kind, nice person in the marriage. I am the sarcastic one in the marriage, right? We have two sarcastic people. It's not going to work. Now that I think about it, I don't think Nurse Sandy's going to help me too much. So if you guys could help me out these uh, couple of days. <laughs> oh, let's go keep going with the story. Go see the prophets of your mother. Now, I love how the king answers. Listen how childish, how, how junior high this sounds. No. No. What? That's how many? No, the king of Israel answered. Because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us in the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives. Now, notice, it's so small, so subtle, but you got to catch it. Whom I serve. Not whom we serve. It, it's not our heavenly father. No, 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 no. It's my heavenly father. Let's not play games. Yeah, you've come to me now, but let's not pretend that we serve him because that's not the case. I serve him. As the Lord Almighty whom, whom I serve. And then he adds, if, if I did not have respect for Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, that's the mildly sort of godly person. I wouldn't even pay any attention to you. Now, insanely disrespectful. Um, be careful. Just because the Bible teaches this does not mean that it's endorsing it. Does that make sense? You have to differentiate between the two. Now, as the story goes on, ba- basically, Elisha's going, I don't want to. I guess I'll help you. And then the story takes a, a weird turn which leads us into point number two. Here's point number two. God is interested in impacting you theologically and emotionally. I want you to notice the next verse. 
Here's what happens. 2 Kings 3.15. He says, bring me a harpist. Excuse me? They're on the battlefield. Bring me a harpist, Elisha says. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha. What the heck? This is funny right here. Right? You guys want me to do what you want me to do? You want me to help you get water? I need some, I need some mood music. I need you to help me make the environment nice, right? And he doesn't pick someone with a flute. He doesn't pick the harmonica. He doesn't pick the guitar. He picks the biggest, most cumbersome instrument he can think of. It's another way of him needling them. Go find me a harpist. Do you think they brought a harpist with them on battle? (laughs) When you find him, then I can get to work, right? What the heck's going on here? What's going on here, you instinctively have, have seen it at Bay Hills. But basically, it, it's the idea that um, sometimes we leverage worship and we leverage music to make an impact with a certain point. You've noticed it sometimes at the end of my sermon when we're getting to the end and someone will start playing the keys. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to leverage it. Guys, this is, this is important what's happening right here. Let's focus and it's the idea that done tactfully, music enhances our sensitivity to God. It creates an atmosphere that can help us better connect to God. Now, I'm going to show you how this works. Is Gio back there? Gio, where are you? Get your butt up here. There you go. Okay. So I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say two things. And the first time, we're going to do it without the music, right? So let me just say it, and, and then it'll make sense. Okay, here we go. Ready? Regardless of your past... Regardless of your mistakes, God wants to do great things in your life. God wants to do immeasurably more than you can imagine. But here's the thing. For God to give you his miracle, God wants you to get in the, ba- in the game. He wants you to get in the battlefield. He wants you to pick up a shovel and make active your faith. That was pretty good, wasn't it? I'm going to put a little emotion. Now watch. Now watch. Let's bring the lights down. Let's bring the lights down. Help me out. Where's the house lights? There we go. Bring them down. Same thing. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Regardless of your past, regardless of your mistakes, do you realize God wants to do great things in your life? Do you realize he wants to do immeasurably more than you could ever imagine? But here's the thing. For God to do a miracle in your life, you need to get in the game. You need to get on the battlefield. You need to pick up a shovel and make your faith active. Wasn't that good? Don't you feel like putting a little extra in the offering? Just that was good right there, wasn't it? Right? Wouldn't it be nice if Gio followed us everywhere we went and he played in the background? Thank you, Gio. I'm done. Right? We could bring the house lights back up. That's what's going on there. Right? It's very simple now. Okay? It's just basically enhancing a moment. Now, let me just help you understand one small difference. I want you to understand the difference between facts and feelings. When it comes to facts, facts is the truth of God's word in your life. When you, are, when you are choosing a church, you always start with a church that has the ability to clearly communicate the facts of this book. It doesn't matter how good it feels. That's not where you should start. You should always start with, does it have the ability to communicate this book in a contextual, biblical way that is authentic, that is true to what God is trying to say? Now, having said that, you and I aren't robots. My job when I teach you isn't just to teach to your brain. 
my job is also to impact your heart because we have feelings. So if, if facts are the truth of God's word, feelings is the impact of God's word right here. And that's where music comes in. That's where worship comes in. Let me tell you a little secret that kind of just pastors know. Every, every time that I'm just about ready to get up to teach, I'm right behind that little black curtain. And before I come up, I already know how the sermon's going to go based upon the first part of the service. Based upon how we worshiped, I already know how hard I got to work. See, if, if I sense, if I've observed, because sometimes I'm in the back until the very end, that our worship is lethargic, that we're just going through the motions, that, that you know, we're more interested in eating donuts and chit-chatting with our friends in the lobby. If we're not participating, if I see that, it, in my mind, I'm like, oh, holy cow, I'm going to have to work hard. But if I see God's people engaged in worship, if I see God's people passionately worshiping, if I see God's people as best as they can with, with whatever voice they have, expressing their love to God, right? I already know my job's going to be really easy today because what happens when you worship is it tenderizes your heart and it opens you to the truths of God's word. See, worship isn't just something we do out of obedience because God deserves it. Worship is something we do because of what it does to our heart in preparation for God's word, right? So my job and, and our worship pastor's job, Pablo, is we talk about it sometimes. We talk about where's our God moment, right? Now, you got to be careful because I have been to churches and I'm not throwing any church under the bus. You're not, you're not going to get a name out of me. But I have been to churches where it feels like instead of God moments, they're manipulating and creating man-made moments. So you got to be careful with the lights and the songs, right? You can, you can take that too far. That is all I'm saying. The story goes on. He has his harp, right? He gets to the business of talking to God, and this is what we read in verse 16. Elisha said, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. That's going to become important in a moment. For the Lord says, I will neither, I, I will see, you won't see neither wind nor rain. So apparently he's going to give him water, but not have rain. I don't know how he's going to pull this off. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, your animals, your soldiers have enough to drink. Right? This is easy in the eyes of the Lord. This isn't hard for God to provide water. Then, not only is he going to give you water, he will also deliver Moab into your hands. The whole reason they got into this is because the king of Moab had, had reneged on the contract. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. Fast forward to the end of the story. The next morning, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Here's the last principle I want to teach you. God gets working on your miracle after you pick up a shovel and you start digging. I brought my shovel here today because I want to talk to you a little bit about it. You go, what, what, what do you mean pick up a shovel? You know, it's interesting. A lot of times when I'm doing Bible study or you'll notice in my notes or you'll notice on the screen that when I'm quoting verses, many times I'll give them to you from different versions of the Bible. The primary version that we use, the one that I have here, is the NIV New International Version. But when you're doing Bible study, it's interesting to look at different versions because the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, translated into English and multiple languages, but language has nuance. 
And different, very well-intentioned Greek and Hebrew scholars are trying to correctly interpret what the scripture is saying. And some of them are very, very literal, and some of them are contextual. They're trying to help you understand it and give you words that you understand. But when you look at this passage, what's fascinating is that the more literal passages tell us this. Look at the screen. Verse 16 from the NASB, New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal translation. Elijah said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. The New King James Version, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. What is he asking? Here's what Elisha is saying. You want water? You guys thirsty? Well, before God gives you water, what he wants you to do is he wants you to pick up a shovel and he wants you to dug ditches. Not a ditch, ditches. Now, can we just acknowledge the obvious? This makes no sense whatsoever. Because if you're thirsty, the last thing you want to do is send your men out into the hot sun and do manual labor. It does nothing but aggravate the problem. And God says basically this. You want to see my faithfulness? First, show me your faith. Let me end with this last principle. God's miracle is normally preceded by God's work order. God's miracle is normally preceded by God's work order. He wants you to pick up a shovel, and he wants you to get to work. Now, just recently, about two months ago, I picked up a shovel. I actually picked up a shovel for like four days in a row. We had done some landscaping at the house. We decided to put some, instead of bark, some little decorative rock in by the plants and decorative rock behind the retaining wall. And, and so my, my friend Bruce Adair got his big truck and he got on whatever it was, three tons, and he dumped it in my, in my driveway. And now it was my job with the shovel and with the wheelbarrow to get it to the, little, the, the landscaping area and behind the retaining wall. And as I shoveled for an hour and a half every day, three things became apparent. One, it required more effort than I expected. Two, it required more time than I expected. And three, it required a more physical impact on my body than I expected. As I shoveled, here's what's happened. I started to have, I don't know how to explain this, but like beads of water and wetness develop all over my face, right? I was like, what is this, right? By the third day of, of picking up the shovel, right? By the third day, there was these things that right on my hands, they started to they hurt right here and they started to be sore, right? Guys, these are soft, supple, white collar hands. I had to use moisturizer, right, to get them soft again. Of course, I'm having a little bit of fun, but my point is, is this, picking up a shovel for whatever purpose is not easy not easy. And I'm here to ask you one final question. If you are expecting and needing God's miracle, I'm here to tell you he's got a work order for you that involves a shovel. He's going to ask you to dig some ditches before he gives you your miracle. He's going to ask you to do some small steps, some small things that will put you in a position to receive his miracle. God, fix my marriage. Oh, I'll fix your marriage, but first of all, start loving the way I told you to love. Start forgiving the way I tell you to forgive. Start being the kind of husband and kind of wife I tell you to forgive. Then 
Once you've dug those ditches, watch me work. God bless me financially. Oh, I'd love to do that. Pick up a shovel and stop spending on credit. Stop, stop spending money you don't have to impress people you don't really like. Start saving. Start giving faithfully. Dig some ditches and then watch me bless. God, give me a promotion at work. Oh, I'd love to. How about you first go back to school and take a couple classes? How about you get that license your boss keeps talking to you about? How about you do more that's on your job description, not just the minimum that's on your job description? Pick up a shovel, dig some ditches, and then watch me work on your life. God, all the single guys, give me a wife. I want a wife, please. Okay? Put the Xbox down. Get a full-time job. Right? Stop wearing sweats all the time. Oh, snap, did he say that? Yep, I said that. But it's not just about that. Work on this. If you find Miss Perfect out there, what are her standards? God, heal my body. I'd love to. Pick up a shovel. How about you lose some weight? How about you start eating healthy? How about you get a little bit of exercise? How about you stop smoking? How about you quit drinking so much? Dig some ditches and then watch me work in your life. Last question, I'm done. God's given you a shovel. What ditches does he need you to, to, to dig? What's your problem? What's your issue? I guarantee you there's something small he wants you to do. There's a ditch he wants you to dig. He wants you to pick up that shovel and say, dig that, do that, then watch me work in your life. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you a moment to think about that. What I'd like to do is I'd like you to think, what's, what's your issue? What's your problem? What are you wrestling with? Just let that come to mind. And now I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit one question on behalf of all of us. Heads bowed, eyes closed. God, what ditch do you want us to dig? What small thing do you want us to implement right now? And don't get me wrong, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. Now I'm going to shut up and I'm going to give you 60 seconds with God. God, what ditch do you want me to dig? Heavenly Father, you are a good God, and you continue to surprise us with practical application every time we open your word. This crazy story about four kings fighting and about one ticked-off, sarcastic prophet telling everybody to pick up shovels is quite surprising in terms of what it wants us to do. But Father, we believe that you spoke to us tonight, because we all have issues, we all got problems. Give us now the discipline to follow through on what you whispered to us, on the ditch you want us to build. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.